Okay, thank you, uh, uh, thank you uh, very much, uh, Jean-Michel. It's a pleasure to come back to Paris. In the time since I was here last time, the last time I came, this book was just an idea. Now it's uh, it's a reality. You can hold it in your hand. Models of obesity. Um, <clears throat> I'll start by by saying that uh, my background is originally biochemistry, and now I'm in a, a social anthropology department, and I, I work with many different uh, dis disciplines. And I, I think <clears throat> more than anything, I, I would call myself an sort of interdisciplinary scholar rather than uh, somebody who's very focused in uh, one field or another field. What I think I can do is I can talk to people in many different fields. <coughs> and obesity is a problem that engages so many different fields um, that this is itself becoming a problem. <coughs> it's a problem because uh, how does a sociologist talk to a clinical scientist? Um, when some of what is clinical science clearly involves sociology, but not everything. And clearly, something that concerns a sociologist, some of it overlaps with clinical science, but again, not everything. So this is, a, this is, this is one issue. Um, so, so, starting with the Romans, I suppose, Marcus Aurelius, everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. So we have the, the first problem is trying to identify what is true. What can we take as being fact and not opinion. It's becoming more complex in science to try and understand what is truth, especially when we move into the era of big data, when we don't even know what the right methods are for much of the analysis of big data, for example. This is a, this is a problem. I'm sowing the seeds for the next book, I should say, <coughs> because, uh, because I think this is a, a, a <coughs> an important issue. So. Um, obesity is many different kinds of problem. Um, we can list them. They're not in any order of priority. They're not even in alphabetical order. They are in, you know, as they're perceived by different, by, by different people. So city planners would say obesity is something we need to think about in terms of transportation. Um, um, a geneticist would say, well, we need to understand the relationships between the genes that are associated with obesity. Um, people who study obesity in children might say, well, we have to involve the whole family in thinking about obesity. <clears throat> Somebody who is concerned with employment might say, we need to concern ourselves about stigma and inequality in relation to obesity. In each of these areas, obesity penetrates somewhere and is part of a bigger set of relationships for other fields. As people who study obesity, I feel that part of our job is to try to um, show how the different subfields of obesity relate to each other. And this is not easy. In fact, you know, even with, with writing the book, I think I only have some, some clues as to what, um, uh, how uh, the relationships among the different fields that engage with obesity is, is, is starting to, to emerge. So, I am an anthropologist. My first job was in biological anthropology at the Un University of Cambridge, and so I, I work on evolutionary nutrition, so I'm a nutritional anthropologist, and I'm interested in ecological relationships. So, with respect to obesity, the biological anthropology concerns itself with evolutionary perspectives, ecological, nutritional, physiological, 
and also life history perspectives, how people change across their life, and how human life histories differs from life histories of chimpanzees, gorillas, other species, and why, we can ask ourselves the evolutionary questions, why are humans a fat species in general, rather than um, <clears throat> thinking about differences in fatness in humans? What are the particular problems that fatness, having body fat at all, uh, uh, concerns itself? <clears throat> in social anthropology, I, I, I have to say I've been uh, uh, heavily contaminated by uh, mostly, uh, mostly uh, 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 French uh, anthropologists and sociologists, um, regretfully in, in translation, but uh, somehow Malinowski, um, Baudrillard and consumption, um, distinction and status of Pierre Bourdieu, stigma of Goffman, biopower, uh, Foucault, uh, science and technology studies, Bruno Latour, in fact, Bruno Latour uh, is somebody that blessed my obesity unit when he came to Oxford. He said, you know, I give you my blessings to engage with these, these different uh, sets of relationships because they are uh, difficult to understand. And finally, there are issues of, uh, um, of, of embodiment. So even with one discipline, there are so many different ways of thinking about the body in relation to, to obesity. It's structural, about whole populations. It's political. Um, it's about how identity and how in modern society we now define ourselves through consumption. Not just what we eat, but the car that we buy, where we choose to, to live, uh, the, kinds of, uh, um, the kinds of clothes that we wear, and so on. All of these things are uh, a part of uh, modern consumption. Uh, we also use our bodies in, as markers of distinction and status. So, for example, these days, somebody who is very thin and tall, you could say is of high status, they can look after their body. They have the luxury of being able to look after themselves. Um, if you were working in the Pacific Islands, as I did in the Cook Islands in the middle of the Pacific, having a large body and obesity was also a marker of status. It's a very different marker of status, that actually carrying fat on the body was seen as a, as a positive thing. <coughs> Biopower becomes important because in obesity studies we measure populations and we create statistics about changing rates of obesity. And these are ways in which we have population surveillance. Well, how this is used and how this is interpreted is very important. We assume it's going to be used in a good way, but it's not always used in a good way. So, for example, in the United States, understanding about population obesity is as much about creating business opportunities as it is about public health. Those two things sit together. So it's in relation to, to, to political structures uh, where bio, biopower becomes important. Science and technology studies, there's a wonderful study in uh, Copenhagen called Governing Obesity, where they're looking at how the science of obesity is being done, as well as the science of obesity itself. How, what are the implicit assumptions that scientists make about um, the, uh, uh, the, the object of study? And again, science is supposed to be objective, but all the time scientists make subjective judgments about things. It's impossible not to. So it's understanding the subjectivity of the culture of science that should ultimately help to improve how the science is done as well. You can disagree with me, I'm absolutely fine with, with those, and I'm also very happy to debate these things, but I think these are all important. And then finally, embodiment. 
how you think about your own body is very important. Some people will say, if I lose some weight, I feel good. I feel much better because, you know, I feel good. But actually, on the other side, in London, for example, there's something called the Diet Riot Club, where obese women celebrate their obesity. And they go out and, you know, they, they, they will book a room in a restaurant and they will eat all they want in the way that they want. They're creating their own commensality by ignoring the public health messages. So, fine, I don't need to worry about this. So, you cannot assume that everybody thinks the same way about obesity. You cannot assume this. So, the body is a site of idealization. Um, I opened a book on Yves Klein in my office, and it fell on this picture. And then I thought, well, I can structure this talk around this. Because first of all, we've got the Venus de Milo, which is the here in Paris, which is a, a Greek idealization of the body. Then we have Yves Klein's subversion of this, the blue Venus, um, where he's changing the aesthetic ideals of this body. What is a modern body? What is a classical body? These things are constantly changing. So I like to think about obesity in relation to the arts because it can unlock something very easily in terms of thinking. But this is not just a, a, a blue Venus. It's actually modernity and how we can reframe something. When you produce a 100 of these and sell these in the store, then you're suddenly turning into an object of consumption. What is being consumed? Ultimately, it's the female body that's being consumed, mm. and not just this artwork, and not just the artwork that this subverts. It's actually more complex than simply thinking about this as a blue object. When you put it into modern society, we have to rethink of it. So this is a model. This is a model of a model, which then enters society. So what happens when you have a model of obesity, let's say energy balance model, and you put it into society? How do people interpret this? It's not as you think about it, as, a, as thinking scientists. It may be very differently. And you don't know how people are thinking about it. Also, as an anthropologist, I see the importance of thinking about population diversity. That actually, in Paris, you may show the same obesity model to somebody who's from, lived in Paris all their life, comes from Senegal, or comes from Indochina, and they may have different perspectives on the same thing. So, obesity framing. How do you frame obesity? The first question that I feel that needs to be asked, is it fatness or obesity? So I've got to structure this first of all, to talk a little bit about fatness or obesity, then go on to talk about models of obesity. So, and then I'm going to run very, uh, very quickly through, uh, through the, the different ways of thinking about it. So starting with, with fatness or obesity. Body fatness is natural. Everybody has body fat. Even the very thinnest people have body fat. So it's a question of normalization. And Megan Warren, an anthropologist in uh, Melbourne in Australia, has um, divided the way of thinking about obesity in terms of alarmists versus skeptics. And in her, she's a feminist anthropologist, in her approach to uh, obesity, she says the, 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 the alarmists include the public health people and the media, all the people that are saying there's an epidemic of obesity, it's an epidemic of obesity, look, 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 Paris is burning because there are so many obese people. And then 
people look around and say, I don't see the fire. I don't see Paris burning. I don't see this as being the problem that is being generated. Even people who are obese may not see the problem. So there are skeptics. And, um, you know, she could divide this equally up into medics as alarmists and sociologists as skeptics. But when thinking about obesity as a problem and framing obesity as a problem, the first thing you have to ask is, does this discipline think about obesity as a problem? Business can think about obesity as an opportunity, as it does with, uh, with uh, bariatric surgery, for example, in the United States. It isn't necessarily seen as a problem. So the starting point shouldn't be obesity as a problem. It should be, is obesity a problem? If so, what kind of problem? When I set up the Unit for Biocultural Variation and Obesity, now 10 years ago, nearly 11 years now, <clears throat> we had a seminar series just with people who were based in Oxford. And the seminar series was called Obesity, What Kind of Problem? And it was very interesting that when you got a, um, a clinician talking about surgery and uh, <coughs> an epidemiologist talking about population obesity and measurement, an economist talking about um, the economic costs, a sociologist talking about inequality, we suddenly had so many different kinds of problems that emerged straight away just with eight people in Oxford. Eight people who work on obesity in Oxford. That was the very, 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 very starting point. So, you know, alarmists versus skeptics. Skeptics resist medicalization and pathologization of non-normative bodies. You know, fat pride movements. You should be able to, you know, display your body without anybody <coughs> complaining about it. So, body norms are a battlefield. Um, the kinds of disciplines that get involved in this are feminist, fat activists, health at every size. And in Oxford, we've invited fat activists to come and talk because we're interested in the logic of how people are thinking about fatness, not really saying this is a disease or a disorder that needs to be conquered, but saying we need to understand the phenomenon and how people understand this phenomenon because without that, we're actually missing a lot of information. <coughs> Okay, medicalization and, uh, and public health. That's, um, obesity skeptics would say, well, if you're measuring children, as in the UK with the National Child Measurement Program, you're collecting a lot of data. Data is never neutral. Data is always political because somebody decides to collect it in some way for some reason. So it's surveillance. I mean... Um, Foucault said that ultimately the best run society is where people are self-governing. Can I ask people, if put your hand up if you weighed yourself in the last week, if you stood on a set of scales and weighed yourself. Just put up your hands if you're willing to. If you're willing to, yeah. I'd be honest, yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This is being a good normative citizen with respect to obesity. You're saying I'm self-regulating. The state doesn't need to regulate me because I internalize the rules about the state and I follow those rules. And I don't need to go to a clinic to be weighed. I can do this at home and I can self-regulate. So 
Everybody who's weighing themselves here is practicing good biological citizenship. So that's a fundamental thing to think about the next time you stand on the scales and say, I'm being a good citizen. I get up in the morning, even before I've had my coffee, on the scales. Actually, for me, it's before I have my cup of tea, because my cup of tea adds 200 grams onto my weight, so, so I'm, I'm cheating. But uh, I have a standard protocol. I have a standard protocol. Okay. Practice of bi biopower. One example was the proposal for welfare co cuts for people refusing obesity treatment in 2015. So people who are unemployed, refusing to receive treatment for, for, uh, for obesity, the state could intervene by taking away uh, taking away their, uh, um, their, their uh, uh, doo -doo -doo benefits. Okay. What's changed since 2007 is the rise of social media. And it's something that we're very interested in in, in, in my unit in Oxford. This is just a slide from a program in the UK called Supersize versus Super Skinny. It's a program where they confront people, one person who's underweight with somebody who's overweight, and they just compare themselves and they follow them around and they see how different they are. And of course there are conflicts, otherwise it wouldn't be good television. But what has happened with social media and, uh, and uh, <coughs> reality media more generally is that there are more places, leisure spaces, schools, popular culture, policy, that are converging to form obesity discourse, a boundless surveillance assemblage. That means that obesity is being watched in so many different ways. What Facebook changes, for example, is when people, and Instagram, is when people post pictures. And when you look at, uh, we're trying to carry out an analysis of Instagram at the moment. It's actually incredibly difficult. But when people present, they present the, their best selves, and we're in a presentation culture, and of course people judge those images. We know that celebrities are judged when they gain an extra kilogram or two. But now we're in a situation where everybody is in this surveillance culture. It's not just public health measurement, it's not just weighing yourself at home, but it's also how you present yourself in, in many different contexts. I even have to think, what do I wear when I go to Paris? I said to my wife, do I wear shoes or wear sneakers? She says, wear sneakers, it makes you look more healthy. So, <laughs> so, so I wore speak sneakers. But, you know, we're all thinking about what we wear and what, how we present ourselves. <coughs> and the social media has changed this landscape for, 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 for everybody. <coughs> the critical thing, I think, is um, the issue of health and obesity. When we look at obesity in relation to health-related self-reported health scores, morbidity, mortality, and so on. Well, the higher the body mass index is, the worse the, the outcomes are in relation to social functioning, physical functioning, body pain, mental health, general health, vitality. So this is self-reported. So it's getting some of the things that you don't get in the pathologies. It's getting the things that, you know, can I be a socially active person and be accepted by other people? Um, can I do everything that I need to do, whatever I think I need to do, regardless of the objective measures out there? Of course, body mass index more than 40, you perform the least well on all of these. But what is interesting is when you divide these functioning according to whether somebody is obese or is not obese, experiences chronic illness, 
or has both chronic illness and obesity. The big difference is that obesity becomes important to people when they become chronically ill. That's the big trigger. Before that, you could have a body mass index of over 40 and physically function according to what you think is fine, socially function and be accepted among your, among your friends, and everything is fine to the point of pathology. At the time of pathology, there's a switch. So we can't even think about one obese population. I think we have to think about the obese, fit and healthy, younger people, and the obese with pathologies. They become two different populations. So a lot of this fact resistance, fact skepticism, comes from people who are of, uh, um, uh, in their earlier years and are still relatively healthy, even though at some stage they will develop pathologies. But we need to think about them as, as distinct populations. The people out there who are resisting obesity and are obese are likely to be young and really haven't come into contact with the medical service in a serious way yet. Okay, I'm going to um, flip a few slides um, because I think you know some of this. Um, I'm just going to finish with one slide before I go on to models of obesity, <coughs> which is uh, Pierre Bourdieu and forms of capital. I love Bourdieu, um, even though his surveys are incredibly out of date. He's been updated several times, including his distinction has been updated for the UK in the last, in the last few years, because, of course, the context of capital is constantly changing. But we can think about obesity and bodies as a form of capital. So, for example, um, having a thin body is embodied capital. Having high income is objectified capital. You can have cultural capital around your body. In the United States, where among African Americans, um, obesity is considered to be a good thing, body fatness is considered to be a good thing, Body fatness and obesity carries embodied capital. Um, the foods that you buy carry symbolic capital. Um, all of these things are, are related. We know that social capital and economic capital form into socioeconomic status, but this doesn't give us a totality of how we think about obesity. It can give us something. We don't know about social mobility. We also don't know about other forms of capital. So I've expended, extended the, the idea of capital to include um, embodied capital, cultural capital, and so on. That eating a McDonald's, if you're a poor person in the United States, is, to quote an ethnographer, eating America. You may not have much money, but you can afford the McDonald's. In the same way that in an earlier generation, you can't afford anything, but you can buy that cigarette. And for five minutes, you can be smoking America. Now you can't smoke. You have to. There are other ways. There's an <clears throat> accepted and, and legal way, which is to use these kind of branded, symbolically important foods, which we know uh, contribute to, to, to overweight and obesity, um, but they are, uh, are used, uh, used symbolically. Okay. Models of obesity. We're still in Paris. Um, <clears throat> And uh, taking the, the, uh, the, the same route as with, uh, um, with um, uh, uh, Yves Klein, now we've got Leonardo da Vinci, who was not French, 
and uh, could have been, would have been a good idea, but uh, apologies. Well, lived in France. Lived in France, there you go. The French influence made him what he was, yes, <laughs> let's say that. Um, and then we have Marcel Duchamp, um, his uh, subversion, just a postcard which has been subverted, and this becomes, you have a model. Um, which is an idealization of Renaissance beauty. So you start off with a model, which is an individual, which is then taken from society and then is painted. Then that painting becomes a model of an idealization of, uh, of Renaissance beauty. Then we turn this into an icon in the 20th century because it's idolized, because we've lost religion in many ways, and so we find our religion in other places, uh, in the Louvre, for example. Um, and, uh, and so we, we, we go on pilgrimage to look at these famous paintings. I do this as well. Yes? There's also a Botero one. Sorry? Botero one. Oh, okay. I'll look out for that. You should really see it, and it's a fat one. I'll find it. I'll find it. I'll find it. It's Thank you. Amazing, actually. Yeah, I'll, I'll find it. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> the Duchamp one is... Um, a model of a model. First of all, it's a reproduction. So reproduction propagates idolization. We live in an age of, of reproducing many things very, very quickly. Instagram, Facebook, all social media are doing that. And, you know, you're reproducing something immediately as so you're using your phone. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you get new idealizations with modernity. So one of the problems with obesity is trying to understand what it is um, that has changed in terms of idealizations and how do we create models. <coughs> I'll start off with, the, come to the book, Models of Obesity, from Ecology to Complexity in Science and Policy. The front cover, you can't see it terribly well, but there is a copy. Can we pass it around? Um, uh, it's um, Christopher Eckersberg um, in uh, the Statens Museum for Kunst in Copenhagen. National Museum of Art, and I saw a waterfall. And there's uh, two, three people with a map, and the map isn't controlling nature. You get a map, that's representation. That can represent something, but does that representation actually help you understand and help you actually control what you're trying to control? So that was the question about, about obesity. Um, Perhaps one of the most, uh, the, the most important people in setting the book up was initially actually a computer scientist, um, Gail Gottlob, um, <clears throat> who started talking about expert systems in the 1980s, long before we were completely swamped by expert systems. So he's somebody I know, his wife is from Bologna, my family go to Bologna all the time, so suddenly we have a, a connection. And so the work on expert systems is about how computerization of everyday life penetrates everything, increasingly, increasingly, from the 1980s. Obesity started to accelerate in Britain and, and, and the United States from the 1980s. So this is one thing that started to come together. Um, <clears throat> Bruno Latour for Science and Technology Studies, Thorkel Sorensen for Dissection of Energy Balance Models, and many, many people, including Jean-Michel, in there, among the great and the good. But also a gallery of artists that created my own you know, pictures from an exhibition. Um, because 
the art forms that I collected, I just put them into a collection, so I just have them, I can look at them. Um, they became <clears throat> cacophony, matters of scale, classification, uncontrollability of late modernity, materiality of fat bodies, classification, boundaries and structure, social disconnects that are created by modernization and globalization, of networks, phylogenies, and all of these are attached to obesity as a problem. And, you know, working with, with artists, in my group we've also been working with, with artists, you see how very differently they think about, um, <clears throat> about these, these, these structures. <clears throat> to return to something that's closer to, 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 to what I think we understand, models. There may be many of them out there. They're all wrong. But some are useful. Okay, so this is George E.P. Box. You know, if you've heard of, you know, Box, Cox analyses, that's Box. <coughs> um, and a very interesting statement, which is that a model is a representation of something. It is not truth. It is something that gives you the best conditional representation for what you want to look at. And so they can be useful if they help you to think about something. They are not the ultimate truth. They are a mechanism, a device, a material instrument for helping you get closer to what you try to want, to want to understand. When we think about models of obesity, I kind of put a line under around 2006. Um, even, yeah, we had a go, like everybody else. Um, genetic models, drifty genotype ideas and energy balance. The um, nutrition transition, developmental programming, obesogenic environments. No, what's in common with all of those is they are all different framings of obesity as a problem of late modernity. A time of Emergence of obesity and diabetes in the Pacific Islands, for example, in Africa and different populations in the world. <coughs> Nutrition transition, you know, where Barry Popkin has talked about Brazil and China and, uh, and many other countries. Developmental programming, low birth weight, and then better nutrition subsequently leading to chronic disease. The emergence of obesogenic environments, they didn't just appear. You know, there's one. There's another one. Popping up like meerkats in the desert. No. No. Somehow, things have been constructed that there was a tipping point at which we could then characterize an assemblage of things as an obesogenic environment. They're all products of... of uh, of late modernity, in the way that Andrew Giddens might, uh, might talk about it. Okay, after 2009, 2007, we get the rise of complex systems thinking. I think 2007 is good because the icon there is Facebook. Because Facebook changed things for everybody. Because we're suddenly no longer in local communities so much as virtual communities that were engaged with other people <coughs> in real time but also engaged with other people in virtual time. So we're now stratified, think of ourselves in very different ways. So the different kinds of analyses that started to emerge from, the, uh, from, from 2007, social networks, systems models, 
political economic, multi-level, complex adaptive, and so on. One of the exemplars of obesity complexity from that time, of course, the obesity foresight, the foresight obesity systems map. It was relating that map, and I was part of the foresight systems development team, so I was actually part of this. And I can I can I can say that in the top uh, left-hand corner, that cluster around there, I'm in there. Okay, I'm in there with uh, with a small number of other people. Actually, that is the product of about 50 people. So only 50 people were involved in this. And that once we had this map, there, got a map. Okay, got a map. Obesity stop. Map doesn't stop anything. All it does is help us to understand something. We understand it's complex. And we understand that we cannot look at it intuitively if we're trying to put all the different pieces together. That's probably the most important message that comes from this, is that we cannot just grab this as a picture and imagine it and act on it as a, as a, as a single, simple picture. What also emerged for me from this was, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we did Pirandello at school. Uh, six characters in search of an author. It's an absurdist play. Absurdism is a field that emerged in philosophy with early modernism. Soren Kierkegaard in Denmark, for example, was, a, was an absurdist. It's about life is absurd because we can't control it. We can't understand it. We don't know what's going on. And so we're, we're faced with meaningless rituals that we perform in the hope that these somehow help us to control and manage the world we live in. But really, we don't. We can't. Six characters in search of an author. It's an absurdist play. There are six characters. They appear on stage, and they don't know what to do. For a brief time, I thought about obesity models in the same way. There's a character. Another character. Another character. Six characters. Maybe more. Each one is a model. How do I talk to this model? How do I talk to this model? How do we all come together and construct a play that is about resolving obesity. So thinking about, uh, about that, that actually um, there isn't an author. Finding an author for this is probably one of the most fundamental things that has to be done with obesity, but it's going to take a long, long time. It doesn't exist. We don't know what the author would look like even. <laughs> so making sense of obesity, what happens with the book? My own piece of absurdity in this is this page is intentionally left blank. Sometimes you see that in a manuscript. Why would you leave a piece of paper empty intentionally with that writing on it? I've never understood it. I've never understood it. If I become a comedian, that's going to be the first thing I, I, I would use as a, as a prop for thinking about absurdity. So what are the things that have happened um, and we need to know about to make sense of obesity? First of all, there are a lot of models. Secondly, obesity really started to emerge um, 70s, 1970s, 1980s, and accelerated from the 1980s. Something particular about the 1980s. Well, I'd say the most important thing is neoliberalism. That actually marketization of the world was the major, major thing that changed things. Secondly, computers changed things by allowing the emergence of expert systems. 
expert systems mean that your, the, the shops always have the foods you want to buy, they're never empty. It means that the transport system mostly works. It means that buildings don't fall down. It means people get an education, jobs get done, the economy keeps going. All through computing, that this, this networked computing has changed everybody's lives. And we don't actually notice it, to the point we don't even notice how our lives are structured through computers. Um, I went to a very good talk about platforms, platformization, how computing platforms are structuring how we live our lives. Um, so things like Facebook, for example, the, you know, the issue about the election of Donald Trump and of Brexit and the role of social media in structuring uh, people into, into, into certain patterns of belief is actually hugely important because those structures we'd never thought about, but they've been there for the last 20 years or so. Um, with the expert systems comes complexity in the relationships of everything else. And then I put in there rationality, and rationality for me is very important. And talk about rationality. The most important form of rationality we think about today that, 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 that features everywhere is economic rationality. And yet, this is an absurdist cartoon that shows how economic rationality can work. Uh, economic rationalities have problems. It doesn't capture the ways that people think about body fatness and symbolic capital, for example. So in this example, you have somebody saying, I've got a stock here that could really excel. Excel, that means good. Oh, excel, sell, 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 sell. Oh, I can't take any more. Goodbye, goodbye, bye, 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 bye. You see, by these misunderstandings, you can create quite absurd situations that actually the stock market, for example, is, is to some degree controlled by human behavior. And there are people who study human behavior in uh, economic transactions uh, because they are not uh, rational. I mean, Kahneman, for example, David Kahneman, wrote about bounded rationality and how that influences how people behave. Okay, so to get to the roots, this is my daughter tearing apart the roots of rationalism. Okay, this is my daughter. <laughs> show a picture of my family from time to time. Um, what is rationality? Rationalism and rationality isn't just economic rationality. We've reduced it to this. Immanuel Kant, to my mind, was the, the first persuasive writer about, about rationalities. Another early modern writer. Theoretical rationality. What is rational to believe? Practical rationality. What is rational to do? And then the relationships between theoretical and practical. This last one is the most important with respect to policy, for example, because what you believe, what you do. And how do you persuade people that this is a good thing to do? In a few words, you suddenly have a, a lot of problems with, it, with respect to obesity. What types of evidence are rational to believe? Biological, medical, economic, historical, sociological, anthropological, and so on. There are different ways of thinking about uh, what is rational to believe. When we have obesity skeptics, they deny the rationality of medical thought. And a clinician would say they're behaving irrationally because they're denying the rationality of medical thought. 
and a clinician might deny the rationality of sociological thought, for example. So that itself is already an issue. And who is doing the believing? Practical rationality. What types of interventions are rational to do? The Nuffield Intervention Ladder, something that the Nuffield Foundation, uh, Bioethics Foundation, looked at, has a, a list of uh, proportionality measures for, for interventions, which go from doing nothing or just watching to the full power of the state where you put people in prison over something or put people in quarantine, for example, which happens in public health. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the rationalities, what types are rational to do? What types of behavior are rational in relation to food, the body, and physical activity? And you can see immediately, even within one room, you'd have a lot of diversity. If you extend it to the whole of Paris, you'll have even more diversity. Even more diversity when you get beyond the peripherique, and so on, because you have many diverse ways of thinking about things. <laughs> okay, <coughs> romanticism um, became important when thinking about complexity. Okay, Caspar David Friedrich, um, fantastic painting, a visionary painter, a romantic painter, um, which shows a landscape covered in fog. And you can think about obesity in a similar kind of way. You have some things poking up, you can see those, but you can't understand what's in the fog. And don't understand how things are related in the fog. The <coughs> foresight obesity model is this kind of romantic complexity. When people write about obesity complexity, I say, I ask people, well, what kind of complexity are you talking about? No, there's just complexity. No, there isn't just complexity. Like, there isn't just infinity. There are infinities. There are complexities. There's plural. There's a plural to complexity. So this is romantic complexity, <coughs> where you're looking across the landscape. <coughs> if you're engaged in interdisciplinary um, obesity work, then you're dealing with romantic complexity. <coughs> Baroque complexity, <coughs> um, this is a sociologist called John Law, uh, is, is where you dig deep into each framing and deeper into complexity. So with Baroque complexity, you can dig into the biology, you can dig into the genetics, you can dig into the epigenetics, the developmental programming, and, and, and life course and life history. <coughs> you can dig into, into the, the food system. But as you dig, you don't know where you will end up. And that's the nature of Baroque complexity research, because you don't know, even know what's knowable. And one of the issues about um, doing this kind of work is that we believe we know a lot, but we're shining a searchlight in a particular direction, digging deeper there, but actually maybe missing gold just there. We have no idea. So there has to be that caution. And I think an important area to develop, particularly now we have network mathematics, is to develop instruments to be able to identify the black holes, to identify the places where the research is needed. Because we sit in cultures of research that take us in particular directions, we go as far as we can, and then we realize genetics hasn't resolved obesity. So what do we do? Let's dig ourselves out of this hole and jump into the next one. But actually, you know, we, these holes that we're jumping into may actually be sitting around something that's far bigger and should be researched. So one, one issue 
um, about trying to you know, understand where we, should, where we should be going is to try to identify where the gaps might be. Okay, we put uh, Eckersberg and Caspar David Friedrich together with Immanuel Kant. It takes us somewhere which I think is very interesting and important. Kant influenced both of these painters. Um, and Kant wrote about rationalities. Um, and his framing of rationalities, I took this in the book. Um, Max Weber elaborated on, on Kant's rationalities. We started off with practical and theoretical rationality in, uh, in Kant's framing. Weber added substantive and formal rationality, practical and theoretical rationality, um, practical ways how to do things, how to think through things, practical rationality, practical way of life accepts realities and finds the most way, best way for, for pragmatic action. You don't have the right information, but you have enough to act. Theoretical rationality involves the things that most people in this room do, which is a conscious master of reality, the construction of precise abstract concepts um, rather than through action. You develop models, abstract <coughs> cognitive processes, uh, which create the structures that you think with. Substantive rationality um, involves value uh, um, a, um, a, a value postulate that we have values that we have value rational ac action so for example I could say I'm a Catholic and I'm opposed to abortion there's no scientific way in which you can test that proposition I should say I'm a Catholic but I'm not opposed to abortion That's, let's leave that there um, <clears throat> but uh, there's no way you can test that proposition you can just say that is a belief. But actually, if enough people believe it, it becomes rational. There's a rationality because it influences people's practical rationality. Um, I do not believe in sex before marriage. That can influence practical rationality. I will, you know, in having that belief, you then have a certain practice. So it's not irrational. It's just um, something that can be bounded, pulled into ideas of rationality um, that can come into dialogue with other ways of thinking about rationality. And then finally, formal rationality. Weber was born very much into an age of rising bureaucracy. We all live in an age of immense bureaucracy. I have to fill out a form every time I want to go to the toilet um, and get it approved. I'm lying. Uh, and... Uh, but, you know, we're dominated by, by rationality, by, by, by bureaucracy. So formal rationality is where um, calculation is done in terms of abstract rules, decisions arrived at without regard to people, that we have procedures for everything. These rationalities are in bureaucracy, but they're also in expert systems, that we live in rule-based society. Everything that we do is based on rules. Even using a phone is based on rules. You know, because the structure that allows you to contact somebody else is actually bound by a whole set of, set of rules and regulations. Okay, in the relationship to, 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 to obesity, um, rationalities. Economic rationality permeates everything. Governments, corporations, science, non-governmental organizations, people. Evolution rationality influences how people behave in relation to food. Uh, substantive rationality um, behaves in relation to, 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 to people and non-governmental organizations where values are important. What we can see is that governments and policies, corporations, 
and, and how um, they create the material structure of everyday life and science really don't speak to people and non-governmental organizations. It's a big disconnect. There are many other connects which I postulated in this book as being important. I'm going to crack on. Neoliberalism. Since the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan had a lot to answer for, including the rise of obesity with uh, making, uh, promoting neoliberal uh, policies. Late modernity. <coughs> this is the 1980s. Is modernity. We've had modernity since the 18th century. We have computing since the 1980s, network computing, and a few other things that serve to make um, life much more, much more complex. We've also had the deregulation of financial markets. Um, that chart simply shows you the integration of markets through global flows of capital. 100% would mean that there's 100% flow of capital across the world. 0% means that every economy is very locked off and closed at the national level. And we can see from the... 1980s, late 1980s onwards, we had a very rapid increase in global financial integration. Why does that matter? It matters because local politics can't fix things like food flows across nations. When food represents 30% of global trade, 3-0, of global trade is food. And with the opening of markets, it's very difficult to control the movement of things like, you know, the things that become ultra-processed foods, for example. So it's no surprise that places like, like, like Brazil, Argentina, and so on, um, South Africa, suddenly get swamped with, 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 with high-energy-dense foods because markets have been de deregulated. Um, the most important economic influence in this globalization has been increased prosperity. But after that, economic globalization with global, uh, uh, glo globalization has had its own independent <coughs> impact on obesity rates globally, not in places like France, but especially in places, in places like Malaysia, in places like India, in places like China, and so on. The, the, you know, the rise in obesity in, in many of the, in the global south, much of it has been associated with globalization. Mexico, it may well be the best example that we can, we can think of in those terms. Okay, expert systems. Um, expert systems are the use of computers and experts to be able to um, make decisions in real life. Um, in the medical field, expert systems can help diagnose diseases based on symptoms, if you use computer-based symptoms, um, and things. expert systems are coming ever more expert, especially with artificial intelligence now, that, uh, that in fact machine learning can do so many things um, that, uh, that, that humans can't do and can do that much, much, much faster. So expert systems are <coughs> starting to dominate much of the world. So expert systems, where are they? In agriculture in retail, in transportation, in epidemiology, in urban planning, in weather forecasting, in public transport, in medical management, in work productivity analysis, in medical diagnosis, in food safety. All of these, even fashion color trends. How do they decide the next season's colors? Artificial intelligence is increasingly doing this now. And you need artificial intelligence now because the, the fashion industry is now quite destructured. That you can't really say this is the color for this season and this is the color for next season. Things are destructured. So fashion itself has become complex. 
So, but all of those examples I gave you are expert systems that are independently making things more efficient. And obesity isn't programmed into these expert systems. So one view of obesity, my view of obesity, is that it emerges as an externality of the operation of many different expert systems because the obesity hasn't been, hasn't been factored into it. Here's one expert system, the global food system. Of course, you can't understand it. Um, <clears throat> but there's a cow in there. There are people in there. Um, and many of these aspects of the food system, from production to, 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 uh, to um, processing, to transportation, to, uh, to, to retail, to final consumption, so much of this is controlled through computing. Global computing is making sure that things are traveling and being produced in a, way, in a very, very efficient way. It's also a prime site for terrorism. So cybersecurity really is the next generation because all these things I've just shown you are expert systems and all of them are open to cyber attack. That's a, an aside. Food corporations are an ecology. It's impossible or very difficult for governments to control or regulate food systems outside of their own boundaries. Um, because even the corporations don't want to change anything. Changing anything means changing something in a complex system and you don't know the outcomes of it. So governments rather say, let's just leave things as they are because we don't know the effects of changing something. Even something like the uh, soda tax um, can't really predict its outcomes. <coughs> Finally, if I can have five minutes on what I think is very important, polyrationality. When we put together these different rationalities, governments, corporations, science, non-governmental organizations, people, and the different rationalities, we can see something very clear. When you put people down here, people have psychological, evolutionary, and barbarian substantive rationalities. Those are key to them. Governments, corporations, and science sit in a very different domain. So it's no surprise that people and their rationalities and corporations and governments and science and their rationalities often clash. They don't come together. So in trying to determine what we should be doing in terms of, in terms of pulling things together into the future, um, I've argued in the book um, that we should be moving towards polyrational approaches. Well, we know we can do lots for prevention, we can do a lot for treatment, um, but we might consider engaging with ecologies of ignorance. Um, that is, some problems can be solved by not solving them. Politicians know that. Sometimes you wait and situations change. Politicians do things by doing nothing. Diplomats do things by doing nothing as well. You can sit on the Cold War for 20 years until something changes because you can't actually fix it. An unsolvable problem, if it's highly unsolvable, it actually has a lot of power. But this is a problem that it carries a lot of political power. This is a problem that we cannot solve. So what it does, which is productive from the point of view of complexity, is that it sabotages the idea that we can force ecological problems, complex ecological problems, into being organizational tasks. Like obesity in the 1990s said, well, we just need to get people to move more and eat less. Okay, that is a, a simple organizational task. But then it proved to be complex, that actually obesity has an ecology. And therefore, as it sits in complexity, we can't really stay with staying with simple organizational tasks for obesity. So 
proceeding from an ecology of ignorance would lead organizational theory to recognize that complex problems can't be broken down into quantifiable objects or turned into strategic interventions. That is, we can't really rely on single individual. We can actually mobilize the idea of ignorance and complexity by, by saying uh, we can't really break this down to something simple. Okay, this was another inspiration for polyrationality for the end of my book, flooding in Oxford. Flood, Oxford's crazy. Oxford's crazy. Okay, um, this is the street that Harry Rutter cycles down when he cycles into Oxford. Okay. That is right in the middle of Oxford. All of this, this is, oops, uh, touch the screen, and I shall go back. I'm going the right way, probably not. I've got to the end, but very quickly. Yeah, uh, much of Oxford here is in floodplain. Floods very readily. Um, this is upstream of Oxford. I live just out there on a hill, um, and this is this is all flooded. Um, how do you regulate water? Well, the idea about river management comes back to the book. That in Germany, Thomas Hartmann and others are talking about polyrational floodplain management, a complex social processes with many stakeholders. How do you create space for rivers? You need to know the different rationalities of the stakeholders involved in regulating the system. You can't actually control water. You know, you can't stop water flowing down a river, breaking the bank, flooding people's houses. You could say, let's build houses somewhere else, but, uh, but you know, once you've built them, you've built them. So polyrationality and land use. So again, urban planners are increasingly talking about polyrational approaches in relation to land use. Insular, opportunistic, kinship-based, collaborative, corporate, structural, container, environmental land uses, even within one place, even within Paris, you have so many different ways in which you could configure the thinking about land use. Why is this important? It's important because if we want to counter obesogenic environments, this is Paris, um, using, uh, uh, using polyrational thinking. People are already using it. People are already doing it and saying, look, we need to involve stakeholders. We need to think about uh, what it is that will make this a, a usable, livable environment. You have to involve everybody. Okay. Polyrationality approaches in obesity. Okay. Don't focus on what is there. Focus on the empty spaces. The empty spaces are the opportunities. That actually, you know, there, there, are, there are places... The only place that is joined up is economic rationality. Everybody's involved in that. So we can focus on that. That's the searchlight. We focus on economic rationality because everybody understands it. But that's not the answer to obesity. It's more likely to come with joining up some of these other spaces and, uh, and not the empty spaces. Okay. Um, I'll finish very quickly, I promise you. Uh, understanding polyrationality... And how can we test the idea of polyrationality? We've started to do this with colleagues in, uh, in Copenhagen, um, a group of uh, techno-anthropologists, they call themselves. They're actually computer scientists who do, uh, who do machine reading and artificial intelligence. And we've um, machine-read 414 articles in English related to environment and obesity. That is not human-read, machine-read. And the machine have, have read this and done, constructed a semantic analysis that what we think of be as one field 
obesogenic environments turns out to be five different fields. The problem is that if you're a town planner, if an urban planner talking about obesogenic environments and a clinician talking about obesogenic environments, you're coming out with different constructs. You're not even talking about the same thing. You think you are, but you're not. Because you're relying on different kinds of sets of relationships among the objects that make this field what it is for you. So there's institutional environments, built environments, food environments, family environments, and finally the bodily environment. For a clinician, the obesogenic environment includes um, issues of, of fat deposition and so on. So, so just within, within this, we've been able to identify different rationalities within uh, that one set of fields. So polyrationality of obesogenic environments. Um, institutional ones... Um, employ practical and formal rationality. Food environments employ economic and they bear informal or bureaucratic rationalities. So even within this field, if we want to talk about obesogenic environments, we really ought to be thinking about how are we constructing our rationality? What rationality underpins our thinking about obesogenic environments? Taking that back and saying, look, we can agree on these things and disagree on these things. Acknowledging that we have actually a lot of shared ignorance as being, uh, as being our, our, our starting point. So we can start by filling the empty spaces. We can clarify interdisciplinary discourses like obesogenic environments. We can involve business in Weber and practical rationality, policy, improving everyday life. Engagement of people and corporations in policy making, but less advocacy and more lobbying. I'm not saying this is these are aspirational lists. It's not something that you'd necess that would necessarily happen because it seems automatic to do. There are things that need to start happening to be able to start to fill these empty rationality spaces, if you will, to be able to start to uh, fill out the picture for obesity. The other thing about um, polyrationality. Since the book came out, um, one of the UK um, um, psychiatry gurus has, has uh, picked up on this book and said, well, we need to rethink mental public health um, by focusing on polyrationality and complex systems. So, you know, already talking with government people about how we might start to employ polyrationality approaches in mental health. Of course, when you start to do that in mental health, start to do that in obesity, you find immediately that polyrationalities will overlap between different fields. Anyway, I don't know how good a vision that is for the future, but it got me to the end of the book, and I hope some of it is, 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 is plausible um, and, and useful. Thank you. <laughs>